good morning. John chapter 12 is where you can be turning. One more time. Uh, we, we do come this morning to an end. Uh, and an end in a pretty meaningful way. It is the end of this chapter that we've been walking through now for a number of weeks. But more importantly than that, this is the end of what most consider, I think rightly, to be the first half of John's gospel, the end of the first of two books that this gospel is organized into. We think of John's gospel in these terms, that chapters 1 to 12 are typically called the book of signs. And then you have chapters 13 to 21, which we call the book of glory. Uh, there are a number of reasons why we see those divisions there and even see them as being intentional on John's part. We talked a little bit last week about one reason. We're going to notice that Jesus stops reaching out to the crowds after this chapter. And in a very noticeable and stark way, his focus then shifts entirely onto his disciples and preparing them for his death. To the extent that the next thing up here after this chapter is what we call Jesus' farewell discourse. We start that as we come into chapter 13 after this. Jesus' farewell discourse in which he is having one, one conversation and discussion and preparation with his disciples is going to span John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17. And then Jesus is going to get arrested and crucified. This is, this is where we are heading. That's the extent to which the focus is going to completely change after this chapter. So in coming to verses 45 to 50 of chapter 12, we're ending more than just a chapter this morning. We're ending this first book. And one of the things that we see in our text this week that also helps us to recognize this as an intentional thing on John's part is to just remember what we saw last week. Do you remember? You can look up at verse 36, what happened in verse 36. It says, he departed and hid himself from them. And yet, what we're about to hear is Jesus crying out and saying this closing paragraph that, as we're going to see, absolutely epitomizes and summarizes what he has been telling everyone in this entire gospel thus far. And maybe you'll be able to tell why most are convinced that these verses here do not represent a separate discourse that followed chronologically after what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. It certainly is a recounting of Jesus' words, but John is giving it to us here in this way in order to be a good writer. He is giving us a summary statement from Christ's own lips of what his message to the world has been. What has been the substance of Jesus' teaching? Here he is, he has been sent from heaven to earth by the Father to bring a message of salvation. And what has that entailed? Well, given that in these seven verses we're going to see, given that Jesus is going to be heard using a first-person pronoun, I, me, my, in these seven verses, 21 times, we can sort of start off here with the assumption that this message leading to salvation that Christ has come to bring centers around himself. We're not surprised by now. We've seen him put himself on display. But as he gives us, and John gives us, this summary statement of his entire earthly message, we're not surprised to find that it centers around him. 
Jesus was not a guru coming from heaven to earth with a message of self-help. Ten key principles to how we can live a good life. He came with a message. He came with a gift. And the gift was the gift of himself, literally. See if you can hear that as we read this. See if we're finding that God's message of salvation was a message of self-revelation. Revelation of the triune God by the Son, who Colossians 2.9 says, is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 44 to 50. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One simple way to describe what we have just read together is to say that Jesus is taking his earthly message and condensing it down to two senses, to the sense of sight and the sense of hearing. So we can think of his message in this way, and we'll structure our time this morning around these two commands from Christ. This message here essentially is, see me and hear me. We'll try to sum up. See me in verses 44 to 46, and hear me in 47 to 50. Let's start with see me. If if we're hearing this right, what he says in 44, 45, and 46, it can create some tension for us a little bit, because it, it makes us wrestle with a question. As we hear these things that he's saying, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. We can wrestle with a question. What are the intentions behind these words? Are these words revealing Jesus' divine equality with the Father? Are they revealing a particular role of the second person of the Trinity to be the revealer of God? Or are they revealing his human prophetic role to obediently say what the Father has given him to say? And the answer to those questions is going to be, Yes. The answer is yes. Verses 44 and 45 are where we'll camp for a bit here this morning. The point that Jesus is declaring plainly is this. He is declaring that he is the perfect representation of the Father. How perfect? How perfectly does he represent the Father? 
this perfectly. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That's how perfectly he represents the Father. There's no difference in this way. That's how perfectly he represents him. We noticed this some time ago in John 5, 24, where there's an unexpected switch that happens right in the middle of something that Jesus says. It went like this. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We noticed it then. We would have expected him to say it a little differently. It would be natural for him to say, whoever hears my word and believes me has eternal life. But he doesn't say it that way. He switched right in the middle of the sentence. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's an equating of the two. And why is that? Well, he had just said in that context, in that chapter, in verse 19, he had just said that the son only does what he sees his father doing. And we have John 8, 28, where Christ said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. I always do what is pleasing to him. You hear these things that have come up for us before. Do you see how this is summing up for us exactly what Christ has been declaring about himself all along? He is the perfect representation of the Father. He puts that in yet another way in verse 45 here in our text. And if it's possible, he, it, he uses even stronger language or creates a stronger picture. We see in verse 45, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. We're getting pretty far along in John's gospel now. We're only a couple of chapters away from that mentally cataclysmic statement that Jesus is going to make to Philip when Philip asks him to show them the Father. You remember what he said to Philip? He says, have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How perfectly does Jesus represent the Father? So perfectly that when you see him, And notice in each of these statements, he's describing genuineness here. Genuine belief in 44. Genuine sight in 45. 47, he'll he'll speak of genuine hearing, not just hearing, not just the sound of his voice bouncing off their eardrum, but hearing him rightly, perceiving him rightly. Christ represents the Father so perfectly that when you see him rightly, you are seeing the Father. This is what he says. Jesus is, Colossians 1, 15, the, and two, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, both tell us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Think about that description. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This gospel writer told us back in John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. But when we see Jesus, We see God. Jesus is the invisible God put on display for those who have been given eyes to see. Now add to that verse 46, where we find out that not only is Jesus a perfect representation of the divine essence in general, in its fullness, 
But furthermore, he is the perfect display of God's redeeming love. He says in verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, where have we heard this before in John's gospel? Of course, we think immediately of chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus' words famously, I am the light of the world. It was Jesus who said that. And yet we hear of our God in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We read all over the place in the Old Testament concerning belief in. Jesus says here in 46, whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And we read places like 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. And Jesus says these things about himself. Now, given how verse 46 ends, his point is not just that he is the divine light come to the earth, but that he then is God's gift to the world that rescues those in the world from darkness. This is what he stands and cries out in this emblematic summary way of everything that he has been bringing to us by way of revelation from God. Verses 44 to 46 is the first part of this summation of his earthly message. And it's at the absolute heart of what God has sent his son to declare to us. If you want to know what I'm like, look to the son. He is the perfect representation of the father. Ryan just read to us some verses out of Hebrews 1. Let me remind you of Hebrews 1.3. These descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 2.9 In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. My friends, these are statements that can only be said about God. And they're statements that are poured upon Jesus Christ in Scripture. I ask you, is God's word ambiguous about the divinity of Jesus Christ? Now here, though, this morning, the point isn't just that these things are true about Jesus. The point, rather, is that this is at the heart of what God sent Jesus to declare to us. That's why it's in this summary of his earthly message. What does that tell us about the Father's end goal? That this is of the substance of what he has sent his Son to reveal. Well, it tells us what we've already heard back in John chapter 5, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. We heard divine priority and end goal in a statement like that. And this matches what we've read there. It matches what we read in Ephesians 1.10, which describes God's will as being, the ESV says, to unite all things in Christ. New American Standard Version says, to sum up all things in Christ. The Holman Christian Bible puts it this way, to bring everything together in the Messiah. 
This is the divine priority. And I would suggest to us this morning that there's an implication there for us. If that's God's chief aim, why should it not be ours? It puts another angle on the demand that Jesus gives to us. When he says to us hard things sometimes about priority, things like Matthew 10, 37. You remember when he said, Whoever loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This helps us to hear that rightly. When he says those things, all he's saying is that the only way we will ever truly image God, which after all is the reason he has made us in the first place, isn't it? The only way we will ever truly image God is if we treasure the Son as our greatest treasure. This is at the heart of what God has sent Christ to declare to us. Now, the second half of this summary, then, is found in verses 47 to 50. This is the second part of our text this morning. And it's not really another thing. It's another aspect of the same thing. But the focus now is on Jesus' words instead of his person. So if 44 to 46 said, see me, then 47 to 50 say, hear me. And again, like with the others, we're not talking about something, um, something merely of a formal hearing. We're talking about genuineness. What does it look like to truly hear him? What do we hear in verses 47 and 48? Look again there. Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, there's some pretty strong and clear statements here about a couple of topics. Do you hear in there the topic of obedience? And do you hear the subject of judgment in what Christ is telling us here? These are the two components of what we find. We have obedience expectations that he gives us, that he describes in terms of keeping his words, verse 47, or receiving his words, in verse 48. And then we have his statements about judgment. Now, in terms of the obedience expectations, let's think about these first. I hope it is fairly clear from the beginning that Christ is demanding obedience here, isn't he? He says, judgment is coming. For whom? For anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. This is what he says. And that's likened in verse 48 to the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words. There is no category in scripture for someone who receives Jesus but just doesn't receive his words. I love Jesus, I receive him gladly. We have a close relation. I don't really care at all about what he says. I don't agree with him in a lot of places, but I receive Jesus. There's no such category in Scripture. That's a notion that is confusing to God's word. It's a notion that, if I could say it tongue-in-cheek, confuses Jesus. Because he asked the question in Luke 6.46, 
He's not scratching his head here, but it's kind of amusing to think of him sarcastically scratching his head. He asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? I don't understand this. Why would you call me that if you're not going to do what I say? He says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you hear these things? The one who does not receive his words has rejected him. No matter what, listen, no matter what they say with their lips. Now, in terms of John's gospel, though, we have a, there's a particular emphasis that John has been giving us in this gospel. It's well represented by John 6, 28 and 29. Let me reread this to you. The crowd is talking to Jesus, and it says, They said to him, What shall we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is God's call of obedience. Believe in the one whom he has sent. It matches clearly John's own purpose statement at the end of John chapter 20. He'll say this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. The fruit of obedience in our lives will manifest itself. God's Spirit will make that inevitable. But specifically in John's call here, we hear an obedience of faith that we're being called to. Come to God in the only way that is possible to come to him. Come to God in the Romans 4 kind of way that Abraham exemplifies. Come to God self-consciously with hands that are empty, outstretched and empty. Not coming to him to receive a wage that we think we have earned. Coming to him helpless, asking for grace. Romans 4 pictures that as, quote, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. This is how we are called to come to God. It's the only way to come to him. Because I'm coming to him by means of his son, the one who is saying, you could not, and I have done what you never could. I have done it in your place. I have borne the penalty of your sins in my place, in my flesh. You must come by trusting to me, by clinging to me. And as it turns out, that's a really important point. And we can see that even in what Jesus says in these verses about judgment. What does he say here will be the basis for the guilty verdict for these people that he's describing who have rejected him and rejected his words? Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. These people will have disobeyed Jesus on a number of individual points at a number of individual moments in their lives, won't they? And in that way, exactly how different will they be from any Christian in comparison to them? The answer is no different. That's how different. They will be zero different in that way. Any single instance of disobedience to an infinite, eternal, holy God is sufficient 
for eternal condemnation. But the condemnation of the wicked will be based upon something more fundamental than that. Those instances of disobedience are fruit. They are not root. The root of the matter is that in their case, they have refused the claim that Jesus' words are trustworthy and have authority over them. Notice verse 49. The reason that his words will judge them on the last day is that he has not spoken on his own authority, but the Father who sent him has given him what to say. The words of this man, Jesus Christ, are going to judge them on the last day because his words carried the authority of God himself. And when they heard Jesus' voice, they did not hear the trustworthy, authority-filled voice of Almighty God. If you've been with us in this study, this might, and you would be right to go here in your mind, it might make you think of the Good Shepherd discourse of John 10 and all of the things that Christ said to us to this effect. He told them then, when sheep hear the voice of a stranger, they don't trust it and they won't come near it. And when you hear me, All you hear is an untrustworthy stranger. He says, this is your problem. Your problem is that you're not of my sheep. When I call my sheep, hear my voice. All the sheep hear the voice go out. His sheep hear it and go, trustworthy, authority over me, the source of my goodness, here I come. And he says to them, your problem is when you hear me, You hear something that you need, you feel the need to run away from and disregard. So what is different in the end in God's children? Not the existence of individual sins and failures. The difference is that by God's grace, when they hear Christ speak, they know all the way down to their heart and their soul, that is a trustworthy voice and one that carries with it nothing short of divine authority. I must listen to it. Now, there are a couple of points in seeing something like what we're seeing in this text this morning that we need to be very deliberate to make clear in our own minds. It's hard to say which one of these is more important than the other. The first concerns what we've heard our Lord say about judgment. He says here of these Uh, non-keepers of his word. He says in verse 47, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We saw this back in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We, We heard a flavor of it in John 8, 15, where Christ said, I judge no one. But what we've recognized is that there's a big distinction as to Jesus' purposes in his first coming. The reason he has come from heaven to to earth and been born of a virgin and lived this life that he is living. And it's that first coming that Jesus is describing. The Father's purpose in sending the Son the first time was rescue and salvation, not judgment. There was no need to send him unto judgment. The whole world stands before him condemned already. The whole world is plunged into darkness without him. Jesus came to rescue some out of that. 
But we can't confuse that with the very clear reality of Christ as, in fact, the judge of the whole world, which even this gospel explicitly affirms. John 5.22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. In 5.30, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. And this passage, verse 48, it is, he says, the word that I have spoken that will judge him on the last day. The distinction has been made in this gospel already. If we want to go outside of John's gospel, then we will quickly run out of time this morning. Well, I'll give you just four places to hear. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. The sermon in Acts 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is he talking about? Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Finally, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Judgment is coming, and the one seated on the throne of that judgment is Jesus Christ. And at that judgment, what will be the root of it? I hope you've seen it here this morning. The question from our Lord, who was I to you? What were my words to you? I told you I'm not sure about which one of these is more important. In finishing that one, I want to say that one's more important. But I think I'll feel the same way in finishing the second one. So we'll see. The second thing that we're concerned about in terms of clarity in a text like this relates to Jesus' statements about keeping his words. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, and then comes all of these warnings to us. The question is this, has our Lord commended to us here a salvation by works? How is this not that? Look again at verse 48. We've seen this already. Who, who is it that falls underneath this judgment? He says, it is the one, quote, who rejects Christ and does not receive my words. Now, when it comes to his words... We have said a lot this morning, we've needed to because of what is said here. We've said a lot this morning about commands. And again, given the passages we've seen, it's not out of place for us to do that, to hear this extent to which Christ calls us to obedience to his commands. But let's remember a few things about Jesus' words. Here's one. All of his words were not commands. Some of his words, for example, were descriptions. The one who rejects Christ does not receive those words. 
either. So when the word of Christ describes you to you and does not use glowing language to do so, in fact, has some very bad news to give you about you, how do you receive it? The one who rejects Christ doesn't. He says, that's nonsense. It's not what I'm like. You don't know me. I'm not so bad as all that. If you're wondering whether you have heard the voice of God in the word of God as is being commended to us in this text, I wonder, when you hear God's word describe you to you, and you nod with it in sad agreement at its descriptions of your fallen nature, of your helplessness, of your sinfulness, of your need for forgiveness and cleansing, when you nod in agreement at those things, should you not take comfort in that? You are receiving his words. When you hear his descriptions and say, he knows me, he speaks truth. Not all of his words are commands or descriptions. Some of his words are promises. The one who rejects Christ does not receive those words either. And why should he? If he doesn't accept Jesus' description of his needs that those promises are addressing. But if you wonder whether you have truly heard the voice of God in the word of God, if you've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and you nod in certainty and trust when Christ promises that whoever comes to me I will certainly not cast out. When you believe in the truth and reliability of his promises, are you not receiving his words? Do you hear how different Jesus' warning is in verse 48 here then from a salvation by works? It's exactly the opposite of that. This is a description of salvation by faith. The one who has not rejected Christ is the one who believes him when he speaks. That one is weak. That one is prone to wander and stumbles in many ways, according to James 3.2. But at its root, what sets the Christian apart is that he hears the authority, the power, the trustworthiness of God himself in the word of God. It's what leads that man, that woman, to hunger and thirst for righteousness in their life, to pursue and follow after Christ, because they in fact believe him when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. They believe him when he says, I am the light of the world. Will you walk and not walk in darkness? You have to follow after me. You have to walk the path that I have walked. We, we, we move toward him all our life, stumbling but clawing toward him by the work of the Spirit because we believe him. We believe that what he's told us is the truth. And so this morning, as John closes out this book of signs, what he does and what Jesus does is he shows us himself. John shows us Jesus crying out, that's how this all began, right? Verse 44. Do you think he finds this to be significant, what he's bringing to us, when he cries out like this? He cries out and he says, Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Hear my words. 
Receive my words. And the result for us who hear his words today is that the older that we get, we've received his words, we have maybe the faith of a mustard seed sized, and we begin to walk after Jesus. And the result is that as time goes on, the older that we get, and therefore the more experienced that we get, even as to things like experienced about our own nature, um, experienced about the extent to which the scriptures really do know us. I mean, it's not an uncommon experience to read God's word and just be dumbfounded. How did it know that about me? This thing knows who I am. We grow in those experiences. And the more that that happens, the more that we want to shape our entire lives around this book. These are his words. And so this is the way that we live. Proverbs 3, 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And as we truly receive it, as we believe it and we take it in and we obey it, we find ourselves echoing the realization of Jeremiah 15, 16. I'll end with this. He wrote there, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, because I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, our good shepherd. We thank you for the way in his, in his life on earth that he shepherded us, that he protected us from our greatest enemy, that he protected us from our own sin and its just condemnation. He protected us from your very wrath by laying his life down in our place. Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend. We thank you for our good shepherd who has been our friend. Lord, furthermore, this morning we thank you for our good shepherd who shepherds us by his word all the days of our life. We thank you for his shepherding of us even now as we have been able to sit under his summative proclamation calling us to see who he is, to stand in awe that the invisible God, the God that does not have a body like man, God, you sent your son to be wrapped in frail humanity, to stand before us so that it could be true to say that if we want to see you, if we want to know you, all we need do is see your son, is look to Jesus Christ, because he perfectly represents you. Thank you, Father, for your son, our good shepherd, who has shown us you. Lord, we pray together this morning that we would be all the more all the days of our life, by the work of your Spirit, that we would become hungrier to know your word, that we would sense the need of it, that it is in fact a food for us. We starve without it. 
We're in darkness without it. We don't know where to go, how to live, how to think, how to speak without you guiding us by your word. Lord, make us a people who hunger and thirst for it. And in these days, these tumultuous days, Lord, we have so many things vying for our attention. There is so much to do. This is a difficult time to live. Lord, we pray that as you make us faithful and as we engage in those ways, that we will not, along the way by accident, lose sight of a passage like this. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on your word and to walk before you after the path of Jesus all the days of our life. Thank you, Lord, for your promise to hold us near to you, that it is not us holding on to Jesus. He is holding on to us. We thank you for him this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you. Let's stand.